10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Okay, Pete, we're going on tour together. Yes. <laughs> okay, now what I do on tour is I put together a playlist of all the songs before I walk out. But then this tour is different because I've never brought an opener out. Yeah. So normally there's a song that I walk out to. It's the song I want to hear before I speak. Yeah. But all of a sudden I was like, wait. I've never had an opener. Pete's going to have to have a walk-on song. So this is like new territory. (laughs) So I was trying to think, what do I hear Pete's? And all of a sudden I thought, supersonic by Oasis. Oh, wow. Because it starts with those drums that you're like, oh, this is going somewhere. Then the guitar comes in, and it's like kind of crunchy, dirty, this arpeggioed guitar part, and then the vocals and the bass kick in, and it's just like, we're going somewhere. Oh, yeah. And I was like, you should wait. The drums start, then the guitar start. You should wait for that moment right when the bass and vocals kick in. And then you should walk out right then, and people will go nuts. Sounds amazing. me don't encourage me look at this you came that was lovely i didn't know you'd take my invite and you're all sitting in the right way all in neat little rows and you're all facing the right way you've done this before and you're here honestly if you weren't here this would look crazy yeah thank you look at that one person clapping is a sign of indie cool but no commercial possibility Uh, yeah anyway i i know what you're thinking you're thinking rob bell is shorter in real life but damn sexy. Yes, you'd be right. Yes. No, uh, I am not Rob Bell. My name is Pete. How's it going? I'm a friend of Rob's. This is lovely. Feed me, feed me, feed me. No, no, honestly. I'll never go away if you keep clapping. Um, yeah, a friend of Rob's, he said, listen, Pete, do you want to come on tour with me? Uh, do some stuff on the holy from your perspective. I was like, Absolutely, that'd be great. If you don't know who I am, basically I sell uh, existential despair for money and alcohol, <laughs> pretty much. It's not the most yeah, uh, you know, commercial thing. I'm not going to get the private jet or anything like that. But um, I, I'll be honest, see when Rob said about the song, because he recorded that round at his house without telling me, you know, he said, Pete, this is what I want to do. I was hoping he was going to say, I have the tiger. That's what I wanted. <laughs> It was almost a deal breaker, honestly. 
And then I was like, listen, he needs the crazy Irish guy with the weird accent and the wonky teeth, otherwise this won't work, right? You need a lucky Irish guy to make a tour happen. It's in his rider. He always has to have a short Irish guy with him. You know, you know Velvet Elvis, by the way? This is a true story. It was successful. You know why? I kissed every copy. Every single copy. That's not true. I'm from Northern Ireland. We are the unlucky part. In the contract that says Irish are lucky, we are the exception to the rule. We're, we're famous for the Titanic, building the Titanic, and manufacturing the DeLorean car, right? So, <laughs> although the DeLorean car, the problem there was cocaine. And uh, with the Titanic, it was the English that drove it. So it wasn't our fault. Yeah, um, I'm actually, I'm not even from Ireland anyway. I'm from Little Rock, Arkansas. I just put this on because otherwise no one would listen to a word I said. Have you heard my stuff online? It's mental, really crazy. Um, I think the Northern Irish accent but is a good preaching, talking accent. Because the other thing we're famous for is fundamentalist preachers. We've got really good fundamentalist preachers. Our most famous one is Ian Paisley. Uh, if you've ever heard of him, he's like your, like, Pat Robinson or Robertson, I forget, but um, with paramilitary connections. And uh, famously, famously, he preached a sermon on the last days, and he said, in the last days, there will be weeping, and there will be gnashing of teeth. And this old woman at the front put up her hand and said, Dr. Paisley, uh, I'm an old woman, I don't have any teeth. And Dr. Paisley just looked at her and said, ma'am, teeth will be provided. So... <laughs> There you go. And the truth is, talking about teeth, I don't even have wonky teeth, right? You know the old stereotype? I did have wonky teeth whenever I came to America, and then you freaked me out with all your perfect white smiles. Honestly, oh, it was terrifying. Not for me, it was terrifying for everybody else. Women would faint, children would cry, men would scream. Uh, I went to a dentist, and he, he was even terrified at the graveyard that was in my mouth. Um, and then I heard an advert for Invisalign, this is true, and I thought, this is brilliant, they give you like 22 braces, the maximum amount I had to do, 22 braces, and every month, you know, they just fix your teeth a bit and straighten them out. And the great thing is, if ever I go back to Ireland, I can just reverse the entire procedure. <laughs> brilliant. I couldn't go back with these puppies, they think the Messiah returns, you know. Um, <laughs> So I just want to talk a little bit about uh, the holy, but in a sense, I want to talk about this holy other dimension within us, this holy other space within. Um, and to paint a picture, I want to start with a very basic notion, which is that it, we as human beings basically live between who we are and who we would like to be. And we live between what we have and what we'd like to have. So if you're a human being, if I'm relating to you, if you're a human being, I don't know if there's a few of you around. <laughs> yes. um, just looking at you as I've got my doubts. But um, you, if I have a relationship with you, I don't just have a relationship with who you are. I also have a relationship with who you aren't. Because who you aren't, who you would like to be, enters into your relationship and your life in some way. So weirdly, we are the, the kind of the space between those things, who we are, who we'd like to be, what we have, what we'd like to have. And we live in a world where people promise that you can get rid of that gap, that you can actually be who you want to be and you can have what you want to have. Sacred and secular promises everywhere telling you that you can have what you want, telling you to fulfill your dreams, telling you that you can have what you need to fill the gap. 
And I'd say to you, like, if you hear nothing else from me, I go, do you try to fulfill your dreams? Absolutely. I think I'd be brilliant. We need a good laugh, right? But you, <laughs> but you could turn around to me. You could turn around to me and you could say, no, 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 I can't fulfill my dreams. Well, all power to you. Great. Fulfill your dreams. Why? So that you can experience the abject horror of your dreams. So that you can realize how ridiculously foolish and impotent and hilarious your dreams really are, right? Only when you fulfill your dreams do you realize, oh my goodness, this is terrifying. And that actually they're just covering over an anxiety and it's, uh, you know, fulfilling your dreams becomes the worst horror imaginable, right? I mean, Schopenhauer, the philosopher, said that we as human beings live in a pendulum swing between pain and boredom or depression and melancholy, right? Depression, which is the unhappiness of not getting what you want and melancholy is the unhappiness of getting what you want. So thanks very much. I appreciate your time. Yeah. Oh, it's a nice picture. Uh, this is beautifully captured, actually, in the story of Oedipus. If, if you know, kind of in psychoanalysis, there's this, the notion of the Oedipus story, uh, which is from a, a, an old myth. Uh, this kid, Oedipus, he wants to have sex with his mother, perfectly normal. Father's in the way. He kills the father, sleeps with his mother, thinks it's going to be wonderful, but it's a disaster, Right? Now, one way of understanding that very quickly is that the mother is a symbol of, of getting what you want, returning to the womb, the oceanic experience of oneness, the, the getting rid of the antagonisms of life. The father is what gets in the way of that. And Oedipus thinks life would be wonderful if I could get that wholeness, completeness, oneness, breaks through the prohibition, sleeps with his mother, and not knowing it's his mother, and it's a disaster, right? Now, the reason why I'm telling you that is because there's a similar story at the start of the Jewish tradition. The Jewish tradition starts with a type of edible complex, right? You have two people walking around a garden, then you have a tree, and you have a prohibition. And these two people go, oh, if we break through this prohibition and take this fruit that will make us like God, to, we'll lack the lack, we'll be whole and complete. If we get that, it'll be wonderful. They break through the prohibition, and just like the Oedipal story, it's a disaster, right? So it's, it's basically the same structure. And in psychoanalysis, you have this notion of the superego. And the superego, as most of you will know, is the voice that keeps telling you that you have to do something in order to get rid of your anxiety, in order to get what you need. You should be nicer to your parents, you should be having sex more, you should be going out more, you should have better friends. You should have better friends. But it's not always wrong, the superego. But, um, but interestingly, within the Jewish story, you have a similar voice, this inner, outer voice, which is the serpent. What does the serpent do? And you get that fruit and you will be like God. You will lack the lack, right? Similar structure. And naturally, we as human beings think that if we obey the superego injunction to try to get what will make us whole and complete, we'll be happy. But actually, it makes us more anxious and unhappy. Right? Now, what is it that makes the fruit tree so magical and special? Well, very simple. It's the prohibition, right? When you say to somebody, you can't have that, it makes them go, whoa, whoa, whoa I really want that. If you've got a kid, you take a toy away, and then suddenly they really, really want it, right? There's, this, this is interesting. You can see this in the phrase making love, right? You know the phrase making love? It's nothing to do with sex, not, not, not initially. Originally, two people didn't make love. A third person was required to make love right? And 
stereotypically, that third person was a chaperone, right? So what does a chaperone do? You would go on a date with a chaperone, and we think the role of the chaperone is to stop you from doing anything untoward. But no, of course not. The role of the chaperone is to get you to start fantasizing about what you could do if only the chaperone wasn't there, right? <laughs> so the chaperone is literally making love. Right? That's why, that's why dating apps don't really work because there's no prohibition. Right? You, just, you, need, you need something that stops it from working in order to generate desire. Otherwise, you just get bored chatting and move on. Right? So this prohibition, this is, why, um, this is the beauty of purity rings. I, purity rings are a technology to help teenagers have sex. Right? Because, <laughs> and, yeah, it's a really, really simple technology. Um, I think it's fascinating that it, it, it happened in the late 20th century when in America everything's you know, permissible, so everything's boring, right? That you have to have a prohibition to make it exciting again. And actually, statistically, more people have sex if they have purity rings, so it's a good thing to use. If you don't want your kids to have sex, talk about it all the time. Say, what did you do and how's it going? And it'll put them off it for life, right? Don't make it prohibition. It's terrible. It's like, it's like my, my speaking, right? People say to me, Pete, you'd be a good speaker if only you slowed down a bit, stopped getting lost on things and tried to make a point. But no, if I did those things, it would be a boring talk. At least now you have the illusion that I could be a good speaker if I didn't do those things. Right? The prohibition generates this stupid fantasy in your heads, right? It's like if, you know, your kid says, I want a puppy for Christmas. You go, no, you can't have a puppy. For I want a puppy for Christmas. You can't have a puppy for Christmas. Give me a puppy and you'll never have to buy me anything else ever again, right? And then you buy the puppy and two weeks later, they're not feeding it. They're not walking it. You have to drown it in the bath, right? It's, um, <laughs> I, had a, I had a traumatic childhood. So these prohibitions... It's called the reality principle. The things that get in the way make things desirable. That's why whenever you get the thing, it's not desirable because it's actually the thing that's stopping you getting it that makes it desirable. Anyway, we try to escape from this anxiety by pretending that we're normal and happy and everything's good. I mean, look at you. Look at you, you're all dressed up as if you're normal. Like you're acting as if you're a normal person. You're not, we all know you're not. We all know you're not. Yeah. They can testify to it. I've been through your trash. Right? You turn, so we pretend to ourselves, this is, this is our dream life, right? Our dream life is when we're awake, because that's a silly kind of Facebook life where you say everything's great. At night when you're dreaming, that's when you're awake. That's when the, the, the truth comes out. That's why you have to wake up to, to dream, to pretend that everything is fine. There's a beautiful story in the Bible about this, about Jesus. And he's, um, he's learning golf, and he's bought all of the best golfing equipment. Uh, it's Mark 17. And, but... <laughs> And, but he's rubbish, right? He's rubbish. And he's teeing up. And, uh, and you know, the disciples are like, oh, no, this is, this is not going to work. It's not going to work. Says, Jesus is like, back off him, Jesus, right? So he hits the ball. Sure enough, he slices it. Goes into this river, this water. And so Jesus is like, Jesus, right? So he goes, he walks. He literally walks on the water, literally walks on the water. Comes, picks up the ball, brings it back, tees it up again, slices it a second time goes into this water. So he goes, he walks on the water again, and he's getting the ball. This old guy, this old farmer, a guy called Seamus, driving past in his tractor. <laughs> Seamus is like, to the disciples, who does that guy think he is? Jesus Christ? The disciples say, no, that is Jesus Christ. He thinks he's Rory McElroy, right? <laughs> you know, we all kind of have these fantasies of who we are that we kind of like, 
we do want to admit our rubbishness sometimes and our anxieties and our fears and all of that. We hide from them. We push them down. The things that we want, we hide from it. There's, by the way, a really good story about the, the prohibition. Um, it's about this, uh, this very high-priced New York lawyer who goes to Ireland to duck hunt. Very high-priced kind of guy. You go, how much do you cost? 10 grand for three questions. You go, Seriously? Yeah. What's your third question, right? So he goes to Ireland. He shoots a duck goes into this field. He's climbing over to get the duck into this field. This oil guy, uh, this guy Seamus, actually, he just met him. Seamus is walking past. Seamus says to him, oh, what are you doing there, mister? He says, mind your own business. I'm shooting ducks. I hit that duck, I'm going to get it. Seamus says, that would be trespassing, so it would, because that's my field. Well, the lawyer says, you want to cross me? I could destroy you. I could go to court and take everything you own. Seamus is like, listen, I don't know what to teach you in those fancy law schools like Harvard, but around here we have a, a legal system. Settle these disputes. What's that? He says, three-kick rule. Well, how does that work? He says, well, he says, I kick you three times. You kick me three times. I kick you three times. You kick me three times. Back and forth. And whoever gives up first, the other wins. Well, this lawyer looks at this guy in his seventies, thinks, absolutely, no problems. Bring it on. So Seamus gets down, but he's a bit more nimble than he looks. He walks right up to him, kicks him in the side, wins him. Oh, he's bent over, kicks him between the legs. Ah, on the ground. Guy's about to give up, but he holds strong. Seamus gives him another like, whack. Then the lawyer gets up, dusts himself down, walks up to Seamus, and Seamus is like, oh, no, no. He says, it's all right, you win. You can have the duck, right? <laughs> so, not as dumb as we look. Um, see, the prohibition, you can't have the duck, generates all the excessive desire to take the duck. As soon as you remove the prohibition, suddenly you're like, I'm doing all this for a duck, right? So this problem, and this is what we try to hide from ourselves. We pretend everything's great, everything's wonderful. But here's the crazy thing. When you cannot speak the truth of your anxieties and your sufferings, they find a way to speak. Whenever you push those things down, they return. It's like the opposite of a graveyard. You know that sign says, uh, uh, go, uh, gone but not forgotten. This is the dimension of the forgotten but not gone. The things that we forget, that we put out of our minds, that we hide from ourselves with our purified versions of ourselves. But they return. And that's what a symptom is. A symptom is the speaking of an unpleasant truth that you cannot speak. So you have headaches, migraines, you're afraid of heights, you're afraid of enclosed spaces, open places, opening emails, answering phone calls, sleeping, waking, heights, flights, cars. Sometimes these are just, you know, medical things. Sometimes, you know, sometimes a headache's just a headache. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. And sometimes it's a penis, right? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes... Your anxieties are telling you a truth. And we think, oh, the symptom's the problem. No, the symptom's a solution to a problem, right? There's a problem inside, you're not looking at it. And without not looking at it, it's erupting with outbursts of anger for no reason, crying over nothing, being really angry at somebody for no you know, conceivable reason. These sometimes are hints that there's a problem. And that's the way your body tries to cope with it. Right? And if you just get rid of the symptom, take some drugs to get rid of the symptom, but you don't work out what it's saying, what it's speaking, then something even worse will happen. I've seen this, right? Take alcoholism, right? You're drinking too much. If you stop drinking, but you don't work out why you're drinking, you'll do something even worse. I live in LA, I've seen this. Have you heard of CrossFit? Honestly, <laughs> I've seen it. 
I've seen it happen to good people. One day you're drinking too much, the next day you're flipping tires. It's terrifying. Eating kale, God, it's awful. So, you know, the crazy thing is that this, this, this holy other dimension within us that we are dimly aware of that speaks in our symptoms, we do want to go there. It's like there's a trap door beside us and we're like, you know, I don't want to go into that trap door. There's tentacles and monsters like in therapy. But I don't want to, there's a whole big trap door of creatures. I just want to, I'm, I'm here because I want to get rid of it. And a good analyst, they push you in, right? Because that's where you have to go. So sadly, like people hear this and go, Pete, you're just trying to make us depressed. You're, I promise I'm not trying to make you depressed. I'm really not trying to make you depressed. I'm telling you that you already are depressed. You just don't know it, right? <laughs> the despair of not knowing you're in despair. You know, the worst place, like, have you heard of Instagram, right? This is the despair of not knowing you're in despair. When someone has to continually tell you how happy and perfect their life is, there's one thing you can be sure of. It's <laughs> uh, um, reaction formation. So um, anyway, <laughs> uh, that weirdly, the way to find a depth and a joy and a beauty in life is not to run away from that holy other dimension, but to somehow let it speak, to let to let that dimension see some light, to know the truth, and the truth will set you free, the truth that we repress. You see, we're all full of ghosts. We're all haunted houses, every single one of you. You can see it. You're all full of ghosts. Ghosts of people you've hurt, and the ghosts of people who've hurt you, people you've loved and lost, and the people you'll never see again that you care about. You've forgotten about them maybe in your head, but you haven't forgotten them in your being. And those ghosts, when you push them down, they become poltergeists and they break things, they wreck things. But if you let them speak, they become holy ghosts. And that's what grace is. Grace is the weird thing that says, stop striving and face that stuff. You see, it's really good to live in a society where you're free to pursue what will make you happy. I think that's wonderful. But we need spaces in our lives where we're freed from the pursuit of what will make us happy, where we're free to be with the full range of our emotions. And that's grace. And I don't care if you find that at the poker table, the pub, the coffee shop, or the confessional. We need those deserts in the oasis of life, those dry, quiet places to encounter that holy other dimension. Oh, thank you. Um, good, it's, it's all downhill from here, so I appreciate the claps. You know, I want to finish then with a story that illustrates this and then we'll on to the main show. This is a, a story from Ireland again about a very wealthy Texan who goes to Ireland because he wants to retrace his roots. He's originally from there. He travels over, he goes to Galway and he has relatives there still. So he goes to this little house, he knocks on the door and this Isle guy comes out, this guy called um, Liam, no, <laughs> Seamus. I wish it was, I wish it wasn't Seamus, right? I've, I apologize, but it actually is Seamus. So, um, <laughs> He introduces himself, Seamus says, oh, how's it going? The, the very wealthy Texan says, oh, I've come over to retrace my roots, reconnect with the land. Seamus says, come on in, have a cup of tea. So they come in, have a cup of tea, and then the Texan says, will you show me around? Seamus says, absolutely, come out, I'll show you my farm. So they go out the back, and Seamus, very, you know, very happy man with what he has, he says, you see that tree stump to here, that's mine, and that tractor to here, that's mine. Oh, and that little, that little broken fence to here, that's all mine. Well, the Texan laughs, he laughs. He says, he says, back home, he says, I can get in my car and I could drive all day north, I wouldn't get to the end of my land. He says, I could drive all day south, I wouldn't hit the end of my property. I could drive all day east or all day west, 
I wouldn't get to the end of my land. And Seamus says, oh, he says, I know how you feel. He says, I used to have a car like that as well. <laughs> now, <laughs> Seamus is old enough and wise enough to know that we all have broken cars, you know? We all have ghosts, and we all have wonky teeth, right? And that's okay, and we all need a Seamus in our lives that helps us admit that, not so that we get depressed, but so that actually we may be able to find true joy in life. Um, I'm gonna finish with a benediction written by Padre Gutuma, a singer-songwriter, poet from Ireland. Oh, someone knows him, yeah, great poet and great friend who was part of a community that I was part of for many years. But before I do, I wanna have an Oprah Winfrey moment, and I wanna give you all free cars. Yeah, broken cars. No, no, uh, Invisalign, Invisalign for everyone, right? No, <laughs> no. Uh, but I do wanna give you a book. Um, so during the Holy Shift Tour, if you go onto my website, uh, there's a little box that'll come up and you can download one of my audio books and it's me telling stories and parables that I've written. So you go ahead, do go do that. Oh, thanks, thanks. Don't clap, don't clap, because what I'm doing is it's a very sneaky way to get your emails, right? That's what it is. You think I'm being generous. I just want to get your emails and then, like, force you to give me money for other things. So <laughs> don't trust me. If you get any of those emails, just, just, just you know, just, like, uh, unsubscribe, right? But there you go. Um, but Padre Gutuma, he wrote this beautiful benediction, which is modeled on the Catholic Church, where the Catholic Church finishes with the words, go in peace, but this is Podrig's reflection on, on, I think, the beauty of going to that holy other dimension. The task is ended. Go in pieces. Our faith has been rear-ended, certainty amended, and something might be mended that we didn't know was torn. And we are fire, bright burning fire turning from the higher places from which we fell, emptying ourselves into the hell in which we'll find our loving and beloved mother, brother, sister, father, friend. And so, friends, the task has ended. Go in pieces to see and feel your world. Thank you.